Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Saw, dude. Saw, dude. What's up with you? Um, Gypsy Rose got married. She did? Yeah, in prison. In prison? Yeah. Do tell. Um, I don't know much about it. I, I believe he was a pen pal. Um, she actually was engaged before this man to another pen pal, and then that was broken off, and then now she's married to another pen pal. And you know what? It's his loss. Yeah, I mean, you I... You know what? We move on. We wish right? the best. We wish them well. How does <laughs> we this work? Uh, what do you mean? There's like, like pen pal programs. Well, I know, but when they get married, do they let her out of jail to go get married? Or... No, I think they do it in the prison. In the prison? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's not going to be like a reception and ceremony well, at like a, the, a hall. Is, yeah, this <laughs> is like, what I assumed. family. <laughs> <laughs> now go back to prison. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not. Like, well, I don't know. Give her one night. You, well, you I know. don't think that's how it works. I don't, well, what... I have so many questions. Like, I don't have the just answers. The rest of the prisoners at the ceremony, and then it's probably just like a just the two of them and like a witness. I doubt it's like a party. I'm That'd sorry. Be, I, I don't mean, have... I mean, I'm not surprised at all. But like, that yeah. would be kind of funny if she got like ten of her prison friends. Yeah, they had like know? bridesmaids. Yeah, like toilet paper bouquets. That's a do it up. That'd be funny for one day. Is you that know? insensitive? That's maybe mean to say. What did you say? Toilet paper bouquets. <laughs> I'm sure there's flowers. They have flowers yeah, they'll there. They'll figure it out. Um, it. I, yeah, I, I just, I presented this information. I don't have anything to follow up with it. I'm sorry about that. I'm but... sorry my curiosity is annoying. It killed the cat. So <laughs> be careful. Here we are. Yeah. What are we getting into this week? We are going to start our story this week by talking about Jose Gonzalez. In 1997, Jose was 29 years old and living in Nashville, Tennessee. He had recently moved from Los Angeles to Nashville to work with his brothers and cousins in construction. But while he was waiting for that construction work to begin, he started working at a McDonald's that was only a couple blocks away from where they were living at the time. Jose was working the night shift, which was from 3 p.m. to close. The night of March 23rd, 1997, Jose was working with his two co-workers, 23-year-old Robert Sewell, 17-year-old Andrea Brown, and their manager, Ronald Santiago. At the time, the four of them were taking care of their closing duties for the night. They had finished cleaning the store and prepping it for open the next morning, so Ronald told Jose and Robert that they were free to go to their cars and leave, but he was going to stay back with Andrea to lock the doors. As Jose and Robert were walking out to their cars, and Ronald and Andrea were at the door about to lock it, they saw a man walking toward them from the parking lot with a gun. This man had all four of them get back inside the store and told them to take him to the office where the money was kept. The manager, Ronald, was trying to open the safe, and Jose said he could tell that Ronald was sweating and was obviously scared. I mean, who wouldn't be? Yeah, it was like, duh. Yeah, but he did manage to get it open to put the money into this man's bag. At that point, Jose thought that this would be all over because the man got what he came for, and now he could leave. But he didn't. Instead of leaving with the money, he directed the four of them to the stock room. In the back, the man had the four of them lay on the ground, 
and Jose saw his co-workers lay face down on the ground before one by one this man shot them twice in the back of the head. When he got to Jose, he was staring right at the man as he pointed the gun to his head. He looked at him right in the eye for a moment until he heard a click. The gun didn't go off. It had stalled. Or jammed or something. The man then pulled the trigger four or five more times, but each time it only clicked. No way. What happened? Either he ran out of ammunition or he... the, the gun jammed. Jose took this opportunity to fight for his life. Oh, uh, hell yeah. He grabbed the gun and started fighting this man. However, the man quickly stabbed Jose in the side. Jose fell forward and to the ground, and once he was on his stomach, the man stabbed him 17 more times in the back of the head and chest. Before getting the job at McDonald's, Jose had known that there were attacks going on at fast food restaurants, but he wasn't concerned at the time. Two months before the attack, on January 20th, 1997, the morning manager at a Shoney's restaurant had come in to find the night manager, Charles Thowitt, in the office, stabbed to death. And there had been about $2,000 taken out of the floor safe. Police had considered it to be a robbery, but Mr. Thowitt had been stabbed 52 times, which suggested a crime of passion. Yes, seriously. 52? Yeah. Brutal. I mean, Jose also was stabbed 17 times, upwards of 17. In the back of the head? Yeah, very brutal, very violent. Police tried to get the camera footage from the restaurant, but there hadn't been any tapes inside the machine at the time of the murder. Mr. Thowitt's attacker also took his car, and it had been discovered parked a few blocks away right in front of another camera, but when police went to retrieve that footage, that camera didn't have a tape in it either. Because they had nothing to go off of, police started canvassing the area to see if anyone had witnessed anything around the time of night in the area, but no leads were developed. They felt as if they were just at a dead end. One month before the McDonald's attack on February 16th, there had been another attack at a Captain D's seafood kitchen. 17-year-old Steve Hampton and 16-year-old Sarah Jackson were set to open the Captain D's that morning. A little later in the morning, another employee, Michael Butterworth, showed up to the store to start his shift and found that the doors were still locked and the chairs inside were still up on the tables. This was alarming because he knew that wasn't like Steve. He was always very punctual and actually ready to go early most of the time. So Michael walked around to the rear door and pounded on it, but there was no answer. So he drove to a nearby business and borrowed their phone to call the police to do a welfare check. Between 11 a.m. and 2.12 p.m., the Nashville police arrived on the scene and found both Steve and Sarah face down in the freezer with multiple execution-style gunshot wounds to the head and back. They were 16 and 17? Yeah. This man is, like, a monster. There's no reason for these murders. I mean, it's just terrible. It appeared to be a robbery, although this robber seemed a bit more sophisticated than your average criminal. There were shoe prints on the floor, but no fingerprints anywhere, and the surveillance tapes had been taken from those machines as well. $7,000 had been stolen, including $250 in coins, along with Steve Hampton's wallet, which contained $600 in cash, which was his rent money for that month. With very little to go off of, police started interviewing other Captain D's employees and found out that a man had come in the night prior, right before close. This guy came in wearing a Shoney's uniform, 
and said he was a cook there, but he was looking for a change of workplace environment, so he wanted to apply to work at the Captain D's. But the employee told him that he wasn't sure if they had a position open and he would have to check with Steve Hampton, who was the manager. This man asked this employee when Steve would be in next, and he was told that Steve came in the mornings. So this man obviously became a suspect in the murders, and he was described as being a man around 6'2 with a ponytail. So a composite sketch was made up of this man and was released on the news. It listed him as being a white man with olive skin, dark hair, possible ponytail, around 25 to 35 years old, medium build, and around 6'2 or taller. Within days of the investigation, Steve Hampton's ID was found on Ellington Parkway. That evidence did produce a fingerprint, but when it was run through the police system, there was no identification that was brought up at the time. But it was still logged as evidence because they were like, hopefully we get something off of this. Yeah, right. They'll have something to connect him. Yeah. So those two attacks happened before the McDonald's murder. So now we're going to go back to Jose, who had been on the ground stabbed multiple times. So as he lay on the ground, he could feel air escaping his body through his stab wounds. He decided his best bet was to just play dead. He held his breath so his attacker would think that he died. He was just trying to not make any noise, not move, and just lay there. When he opened his eyes, Jose was laying face to face with his manager, Ronald, in Ronald's blood. He was afraid to move because he wasn't sure if his attacker was still behind him, but soon enough, he heard the sound of a door closing, and when he opened his eyes, he didn't see his attacker anywhere. Immediately, he started thinking about getting to a phone and started crawling to the office. But when he got into the office, he couldn't find the phone. He was starting to get really tired and was close to losing consciousness because of all the blood loss. But as he crawled near the desk, he saw a white spiral cord. And when he pulled on it, the phone fell to the ground, thankfully. And he immediately dialed 911 and said that he needed an ambulance. Off in the distance, he started to hear sirens and then heard as the emergency responders broke the glass in the front of the restaurant to get inside. But he then realized that they went to the storage room first and had been examining his co-workers. And they didn't know that he was in the other room, so he had to just wait for them to come looking. Wait, did the attacker kill all three of the other people? Yeah, the other three of them did die. I think one of them was still technically alive on the scene, but then ended up dying later. Yeah. But, I mean, he's the only one that's alive. Yeah. Or close to a phone, so they should be looking. Right, and they will. But it was just, they, they went straight to the storage room, and he was like, oh, God, this is really bad. Yeah. I can't imagine, like, sitting like, there. Like, they're, they're right there. Yeah. Ugh. When they did finally make it into the office, he could barely move, but he moved his feet a little to show the emergency responders that he was still alive. So he was, like, barely able to do anything. He could, like, his eyes were probably closed. Like, he was just in bad shape. Jose suffered tremendous injuries. It was astounding that he survived with the wounds that he sustained. When emergency services arrived, they found Jose still breathing but not responsive, so paramedics rushed him to the hospital. Andrea Brown had also been rushed to the emergency room, but doctors pronounced her brain dead. She was sadly removed from life support the following morning, so that was the co-worker that made it to the hospital but didn't ultimately make it, which is very sad. In the hospital, Jose needed four different surgeries on his lungs, his face, his head, and his hands. 
When he woke up, he heard someone calling his name, but when he tried to talk, he couldn't get any sound out. That's when he was told that he couldn't talk right now, but just to move his fingers to respond. A detective for the Nashville police had to ask him questions regarding his attacker because he was the only one that survived. After the McDonald's attack, police started piecing together that these attacks were all related. They were all fast food restaurants, all involving young people, all attacked, including knives and guns, and all included a robbery. There had already been six people killed from these robbery murders and only one surviving victim. So at this point, police knew that they had a serial killer on their hands. And because this individual was targeting fast food restaurants, he was deemed the fast food killer in the media. The primary focus at that point was to interview Jose Gonzalez and have him provide a sketch of the attacker because he is the only surviving victim of this killer and he's the only person that they know for a fact has actually seen this man. Because, you know, they had the other person say, this weird person came in the other night, but they aren't entirely sure that that's the person who killed them. So it was important, you know. In the hospital, as Jose was being interviewed, he could barely speak but was able to communicate with officers enough. They used signs, symbols, and nodding, and eventually some whispering, and through that, he gave the best description he could of the killer that night. That sketch was put out everywhere, in the papers, on the TV, all over the media. This is all people were talking about, and rightfully so. I mean, six teenagers and, you know, young people were killed, so it's frenzy. It's a, it's a chaos, you know? Yeah, I'm not going outside much. Seriously, I wouldn't even go get food. Like, what do you do? Not a fast food restaurant. Well, no. I mean, I couldn't imagine being a fast food worker at that point, you know? Because I'm sure you can't just, like, quit your job. You need money. But, right. But it's, like, actively so dangerous. Yeah. yeah. I would be packing heat. Or something. Shift. Yeah. So, I mean, something, anything. Yeah, that's true. Once Jose was able... He looked through a slew of different mugshots to try and identify this man. Books and books of pictures. Jose said it was somewhere around 500 to 600 pictures, but he never saw his attacker. I can only imagine that that would get very difficult to look at that many pictures. Because, I mean, even though he saw this man, eyewitness accounts like get very blurred with certain things, especially when you're introducing like a bunch of more faces i could imagine that would be hard to like retain an image of the person that actually did it oh absolutely but i mean i'd imagine that moment where he's looking at him with the gun and it clicks has been burned into his brain that's true i mean he's also recovering too yeah so i'm sure that was exhausting yeah definitely and i don't know i feel like he would never forget that face that's very true i think it probably would have been harder if this man didn't look kind of as distinct as he did Like, if he was just, like, any other random white dude, it might be hard. But he did kind of have, like, a distinct look to him. So I'm sure that helped. You know, that's probably a good thing. What is the motive? I mean, I'm trying to make it make any shred of, like, sense. Greed? He's a psycho? I don't know. But, like, greed, why would you kill them? I don't know. Oh, I do I've, know. Well, <laughs> I said I don't know, but I do know, and I'm going to talk about it later. Oh, he doesn't want any witnesses. But yeah, I mean, like, that's exactly. Wouldn't it. <laughs> you? Wouldn't you have more heat on you if you murdered people? 
because then it's just not it's not only a robbery investigation it's a murder investigation yeah like but multiple people... like if you kill multiple people the fbi is going to be on your ass yes definitely i mean you're going to get Instead a way of... worse sentence if you just do a robbery but you're right. still going to go to jail if you are caught with like if you're caught robbing restaurants for thousands of dollars like it's still not a minor crime you know yeah no but i just feel like they would treat stealing this is really not that much money he stole two grand out of the safe one Mm. time and probably less than 30k total like that's not fbi level crime i just feel like logically this is the wrong move anyway just not even to speak of like how fucking horrific it is yeah well, yeah, it is logically the bad move. <laughs> like, don't rob people, but definitely don't murder them. But yeah, I am going to talk about it later. But his motive was to, or not his motive, but his reasoning was to not leave any witnesses because he had been caught for something similar like this in the past. And so he said he was not going to leave any witnesses after that. And he meant it. Police and investigators were working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to try and find this man and put an end to this madness. They were staking out different fast food restaurants all over the city, and the police chief put extra patrolmen in the area they already knew he had struck. They also set up a hotline that generated 1,200 leads. The community itself was in an uproar. People were terrified. Businesses were closing early. They had extra security if they could. They were doing anything they could to protect themselves from this crazed killer on the loose. One month after the McDonald's murders, on April 24, 1997, the Nashville police received a call from the Clarksville Police Department, which was about 40 miles away. They had two girls missing from a Baskin-Robbins. 21-year-old Angela Holmes and 16-year-old Michelle Mace. Michelle's brother, Craig, had shown up to the Baskin-Robbins and found that the girls weren't there, but their purses were. He then noticed the floor safe had been pulled out of the floor, so he called Angela's husband, who came immediately down to the store as well, and the two of them called the police. Nashville police immediately drove out there to take a look at the scene. When they got there, it looked like a typical robbery since there was no blood. The only money in the store was inside Angela and Michelle's purses, which seemed to have been left behind. Approximately $1,200 in cash was missing, and the videotape from the surveillance system was also missing. So, classic fast food killer, you know, taking the tape. But the police felt like this had been... I didn't know he was taking the tape. Oh, yeah. All the other murder scenes and things he's been tied to, there hasn't been a tape in the recorder how did he know because he's robbing and he knows that there's surveillance cameras and it was the 90s so you could literally just physically take a tape out of the camera and then it wouldn't have anything to record on that's so wild yeah all over 1200 yeah i mean i'm sure he didn't know it was only 1200 he probably went in there expecting like the 7,000 that he got at like whatever other fast food restaurant. So yeah, but I mean, to him, it's, it's the money that he's coming for. You know, he knows what he's into. It doesn't make any sense. Like it's, it's all just chaos. The police felt like this had been connected to the other string of murders, even though the girls were nowhere to be found. But less than an hour later, police had been called to Dunbar Cave State Park after a man walking his dog made a grisly discovery. 
At that location, only a few miles away from the Baskin Robbins, one victim was found up in a wooded area, and the other was found down by the stream, partially in the water. And both women's throats had been cut. It was just a very unpleasant scene, a very bad way to die. Yeah, but, like, his motive is not only greed at this point. No, he's a psycho. Clearly not. Yeah, no, he's, he's like, brutally killing people, and for nothing. Because like Jose had mentioned when he was robbing McDonald's, he could have just gotten the money and left. But, I mean, like we said, he didn't want to leave any witnesses. But it even goes beyond that because he he's not just shooting them. He's, like, stabbing them, like, 52 times, like, you know, just brutally killing them. And for nothing. They already gave him the money. And he's just, like torturing them for no reason so he is just a psycho like i don't there's no good reason for any of this right because his attack was so similar to the others in nashville this only expanded the search for this man the police in nashville were already on high alert but now this was a multi-county hunt for this killer it seemed as if this killer wasn't going to stop until he was found either so they were really on high alert The search efforts became all hands on deck. The police asked for the public's help to report anything unusual they may have seen, and that's when even more tips started flooding in. Although, they were helpful because someone called in saying they had seen a red car around the Baskin-Robbins around the time the girls would have gone missing. And then someone else called in seeing a red car around Dunbar Cave State Park. So this red car is linked to this person, which is a good thing to know. So police put out a bolo looking for anybody who knew anything about a red car in that area at that time. About a month after the Baskin-Robbins murders, this perpetrator attempted one last attack. In 1997, 46-year-old Mitch Roberts worked as a general manager at one of the busiest Shoney's in Nashville. He was aware of the recent attacks at the other fast food restaurants, and he would even have customers ask him if he knew anything about the attacks or how the investigation was going. And these weren't unreasonable questions because policemen would also come into the store and would keep him updated on how things had been going. Because, like I mentioned, policemen all over the city and the surrounding counties were going into these fast food restaurants to like eat there and they were sitting outside and they were just patrolling at all times because that seemed like the only safe thing to do. But being that his Shoney's was such a high traffic restaurant, Mitch didn't think that he would be a target because why would this person go to a place that was going to get him unwanted attention? At the time, Mitch lived about 25 miles outside of Nashville in a rural area. Not only did he live in a rural area that was quiet 95% of the time, but his house was in a very remote area that was kind of hard to find. On June 1st, 1997, Mitch Roberts was on the couch with his wife and two children watching TV before bed, and his son was actually holding like a, a video camera, like they were kind of making a home video, while they heard a knock on the door. No. Yeah. And when Mitch got up to go to the door, he saw that one of his cooks from his Shoney's restaurant was standing there. And his name was Paul Dennis Reed. He has three first names? (laughs) You love that. You love when people have three first names. Bro, 
No, I've never heard of this. Yes, you have. There have literally? been two first names, which you never trust, but three? <laughs> Every I mean, time anyone has, like, multiple first names as their name, you're like, you always point it out. It's, you love it. I mean, <laughs> am I wrong? I don't know why you think about it so much. Wait, That's funny. Come on, we're going to, like, roll up on a guy named Paul David and not be a little suspicious? <laughs> All right, facts. <laughs> We're going to have somebody messaging. My name's Paul David. I'm, I'm not a bad guy. You're fine, I'm sure. Just because but I'm bad guy does like not mean weird. I'm bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Dennis Reed was originally from Texas, but came to Nashville to be a country music singer. He told people that he was going to become the next Garth Brooks. Cool. <laughs> He had headshots of himself wearing expensive boots, cowboy hats, belt buckles, holding a guitar, and he made tapes of himself singing. But according to Mitch Roberts, quote, Paul couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, people from the South have the best backhanded compliment or like just insults. insults. Yeah. Bless his heart, you Bless know? Bless his sweet little heart. <laughs> he could carry a tune in a bucket. Yep. <laughs> At first, Paul was very respectful and would only answer to Mitch with yes, sir, and no, sir. But that was until one occasion when he lost his temper while on the cook line and threw a plate across the store that hit one of the dishwashers. So Mitch had no choice but to fire him on the spot. Yeah, you can't be throwing plates at people. Can't be throwing plates at the the dishwashers. I'm just imagining how this would be handled on like a grade school playground. Like, hey, go to timeout. Hey, Paul, <laughs> go to timeout. Go to the principal. How office. would you feel if he did that to you? Ouchie. Paul? And now Paul was standing outside his house on a Sunday night. Very random. Mitch was definitely shocked. On the Lord's Day? On the Lord's Day. Bless his heart, but fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Mitch was definitely shocked, but he opened the door and let him in and asked Paul why he was standing on his porch on a Sunday night and how he found his house. He's like, how the hell did you find where I live? Like, I live 25 miles away from our Shoney's in like the middle of nowhere. Paul, explain. You have some explaining to do. He has two kids and a wife. Paul said that he wanted to see if he could get his job back. Before he could answer, Paul, before he could answer Paul, Mitch's wife interrupted the conversation and asked her husband if she could quickly speak to him in the other room. Yeah. She told Mitch... She needs to go get the shotgun. Yeah, so she told Mitch that something was off about that man and she wanted Mitch to get rid of him. So back out in the living room, Mitch told Paul it was kind of late, so he should come by tomorrow and they could talk about his job then. Mitch then led him toward the door and they walked out together. And out on the porch, Paul turned to Mitch and told him that he could prove someone had been stealing from the restaurant. So the two of them started walking down toward Paul's car about 75 to 100 feet from Mitch's house so he could show Mitch this quote-unquote proof. And that's when Mitch saw that Paul drove this red car that had been parked in his driveway. No. Yeah. And as he's walking with Paul, he starts putting the pieces together and realizes that this was the very red car that had been all over the news. And this was the person the police were looking for. 
I mean, put yourself in Mitch's shoes just for a second. You are literally walking slowly toward this man's car. You see it. You're like, oh, shit, he's a serial killer. Yeah, and you put it together that you're walking to your death. Literally. Yeah. Your family's in the house. Yeah. I mean, how how do you even come up with a plant? Like, what do you do? I don't even know what you do. Well, do you want to know what Mitch did? Yeah, what did Mitch do? Okay, so... He's got a better idea than me, I'm sure. Mitch didn't want to lead on that he was freaking out, obviously. So he calmly turned to Paul and told him, you need to give me a call tomorrow and we'll talk about your job before just turning and walking away. But Paul ran back in front of Mitch and pulled out a gun. He then handed Mitch a pair of handcuffs and said that he was going to do exactly what Paul told him to do. And Mitch told him that if this was a joke, it wasn't funny. Paul told him that this was not a joke, and there were two men behind his house that would shoot him if he didn't do what he said. Mitch thought that Paul's ultimate goal was to get him into the car, handcuff him there, and then go inside and kill his family, and then take Mitch to the Shoney's to have him open the safe and then kill him there which is very plausible now that we like know who this man is and like what he's done. So that is probably exactly what was going to happen because not only does he want a lot of money and he wants to take Mitch back to the Shoney's, but Mitch's whole family, including his two children, were in the living room when Paul knocked on the door. Those are witnesses, you know? He wants no witnesses. Oh, fuck, man. Yeah. Mitch's mind was going a million miles a minute because he was not going to let Paul go into his house. He would die before he let that happen. But he also wasn't sure if he actually meant that there was two men behind his house or if that was a bluff. That's so, a bluff. Well, he didn't know. So you, I mean, but like people like this operate on their own. I mean, not necessarily. Like, probably. And I he, really... He thought it was a bluff, but also you can't entirely be sure. I guess so, but... So Mitch started treating Paul as if he were still his boss. So he turned and walked away from him again and went back to the porch. Can you imagine? Just ice in the veins. He was like, I'm, I'm going to completely ignore the fact that you have pointed a gun at me and tried to hand me handcuffs, and I'm literally just going to turn and walk away. Wow. <laughs> Like, I mean, how do you, yeah, how do you keep it together? I don't know. And when he honestly, is this the move? Well, I feel like that's dumb because he's shot people in the back of the head. No problem. Yes, but he, he wants to go to Shoney's and get the money. He needs the manager. I guess so. When he turned back around, he saw that Paul now had a gun in his one hand and a knife in the other, but he kept calm and asked Paul what he needed. He told Mitch that if he wasn't going to give him back his job, he needed money. So Mitch turned to the front door, but instead of pulling it open, he turned and punched Paul and backed in front of the doorway and then held onto the door to keep him from pulling it open and getting inside. And while Paul is kind of reeling from being punched in the face, he yelled to his wife or Mitch yelled to his wife inside, hand, hand me the gun. It's laying right there wasn't laying right there there was no gun but paul bought it and he left oh my god yeah so mitch literally was like hand me the shotgun it's right by the door and then paul just turned around and left isn't that insane bluff saved his life that's insane 
Dude, I can't. I mean, who has the ice in the veins like him? That much ice. <laughs> how many times can we say ice in the veins before it gets so I mean, so but annoying? it's just so true. I mean, how do you? Once Mitch was back inside because Paul has left in his car, they locked the door and they immediately called the local police. They told the cops that the serial killer that they were looking for in Nashville had just tried to break in. And as the police... So the police immediately go there. And as they're in his house interviewing him, the phone rang. And on the other end was none other than Paul himself. He what does wanted, Paul have to say? He wanted to apologize. He said he was very sorry that they had words on the porch, but he was hoping that Mitch could forget about it and just give him his job back. For Christ, Paul. For Christ, Paul. Mitch you, was how delusional of a human being do you have to be? He's a to psycho. think that you do that, threaten a man's family, hold a gun and, then, and a knife at them, yeah, and say that there there are two men behind your house that will shoot you if you do not come with me or listen to me, and then you run away, and you're like, hey, buddy, um, so sorry. Let's just forget let's about just, that. Let's just forget about this whole thing. What? Bless your heart. Well, I mean, can't make him buy it and be like, hey, come by, the, come by the house. Oh, wait and listen to this. So Mitch was definitely not expecting to hear back from Paul again, but he thought maybe he could help the police catch him. So he told Paul, we need to talk about this before tomorrow. You need to come back out here tonight. And Paul agreed. When Paul made it back to the house... He was met by six police officers waiting for him. We love that. So he's dumb, too. Yes! Police weren't obviously waiting for him as he drove up. They let him park the car. They let him start walking up. And then immediately, they flooded out from behind brick walls, from behind bushes, just completely surrounded him. Yeah. There was, Get on the ground, bitch. Yeah, there was nowhere for him to go. So he was he surrendered and he was arrested. Mitch had never seen that side of Paul until he threw that plate that hit the dishwasher. But he learned that Paul had been around this town to find out exactly where Mitch lived and to find out things about him before he showed up that night. Mitch believed everything he did was very premeditated and he was a lot smarter than people gave him credit for. So... He's I mean, stupid, yes, but he's dumb, you like, know? Yes, but then you went <laughs> back to the... You thought that you could get a job from a guy who just threatened his life. I just said he's stupid, but he's dumb. I meant he's smart, but he's stupid. <laughs> you know, he's stupid, but he's dumb. <laughs> ah, I just don't get it. No, it makes no sense. It doesn't really make sense. Because, like, he obviously knew what he was doing in his, like, criminal life. But, but, as, not. A, but as a person... He's not very smart. He just knew, wipe away the fingerprints, take the tapes out of the cameras, leave no witnesses. That's all that was in the brain, you know? Now the police had Paul Dennis Reed in custody, they decided to call up Jose Ramirez and asked him if he could identify some more possible pictures of his attacker. And when he was shown the lineup, he immediately started having a panic attack when he saw Paul's face. He was able to pick him out, and that's when he was told that Paul Dennis Reed had already been taken into custody. So that was a relief. But now officers wanted to see what information they could get out of Paul, so they brought him back to Nashville for questioning. 
They tried multiple different ways to make him talk. They did the good cop, bad cop thing, but nothing was really working. But soon enough, he started saying some weird stuff. First of all, he started referring to himself in the third person, randomly enough. And then he started talking about how he was under 24-hour police surveillance and how he wasn't the trigger man and he never pulled the trigger. So he's like weaving these weird little things into these questions with the police and they're like what what are you saying so you didn't do it but you did it like what so he's weird but really (laughs) that was not a very smart string of words that i just (laughs) strung together (laughs) you know what bless your heart bless my heart it's been a long week it's fine He never actually said he committed the homicides, but Jose picked him out of the lineup. His fingerprints matched to those found on Steve Hampton's card, and he drove the red car. After searching his apartment, they found four one-gallon jugs that contained more than $1,000 in coins. They also found a pair of white sneakers containing traces of human blood. On the bottom of Reed's shoes, forensics found the DNA of one of the employees at the Baskin-Robbins restaurant. Investigators also searched Reed's red Ford Escort and found fibers in the back seat and the floor mats that matched fibers found on the clothing of Michelle and Angela, who were the Baskin-Robbins employees. So all of these pieces together were really just tying an even tighter noose around Paul Dennis Reed's neck. And you know what? Fuck yeah. Yeah. This was an absolutely overwhelming amount of evidence against him. So it was very clear that he was, there was no way he was getting out of this one. But prosecutors spent the next year and a half building the case against Paul Dennis Reed. They wanted to know exactly who he was. You're going to take a year and a half? They wanted to know who he was. Talk to him. A year and a half? Dude. They're building a case. Why are you so pressed? He's in custody. He's not getting out. Put him away. He's away. Enough. (laughs) Okay. I mean, what do you spend a year and a half doing? Well, I'm going to tell you. So let's talk about who Paul Dennis Reed is, shall we? He was born in Fort Worth, Texas, November of 1957. His parents divorced when he was approximately three years old. His father was a raging alcoholic. Young Paul spent lots of time with his parental grandmother, who he terrorized by putting tacks in her food, sprayed her with a water hose, and barricaded her into her room. At one point, he attempted to set his grandmother on fire while she was sleeping in her bed. By the age of eight, Reed was... He wasn't even eight when he tried to set his grandma on fire? I suppose not. By the age of eight, he was completely out of control and was ultimately turned over to a home for boys. By the time he was a teenager, neither of his parents wanted him around. And when he was 16, he attempted to sexually assault both his mother and his sister. So his mother kicked him out of the house. Oh my God. Yeah. He went back to live with his father, but there he attempted to sexually assault his other sister And he was kicked out of that house and ended up being arrested for auto theft. He received three years probation, but he wasn't scared straight, apparently. Instead, he developed a deeper life of crime. He had quite an extensive record with robberies, check fraud, and auto theft. In April of 1984, he was sentenced to 20 years behind bars for robbing restaurants and a hardware store, but was released after only serving seven years. 
several criminal justice professionals and experts told as many people as they could he was a danger to society, he was going to hurt somebody else, but it didn't matter. And that was a huge mistake because after he was paroled in 1990 and given early release, he said before leaving the prison, quote, next time I won't leave witnesses, which is exactly what we've been talking about. So he's a terrible, terrible man. Less than a year out, Paul Dennis Reed was working as a truck driver in Fort Worth, Texas when he got into a horrific accident. He received nearly $2,000 of workman's comp and a $25,000 settlement. So you may be wondering, what did he choose to spend that money on? Plastic surgery. He had, <laughs> he had a skin peel. He had his ears pinned back. Some dental work done to straighten out his teeth because he had a new goal to be a country western singer. So he went to Nashville, Tennessee in September of 1995 and he dressed the part with the cowboy hat, the boots, the blue jeans, and he told people that his name was Justin Parks, the next Garth Brooks. Within a month, Reed was working as a cook in the local Shoney's. Before long, he turned back to what he knew, armed robbery. And here we are. In court, the prosecution said that his motive was greed. He had three trials, one for Captain D's, one for Baskin Robbins, and one for McDonald's, although he was never able to be tied to the Shoney's murder. However, in the McDonald's trial, Jose Gonzalez testified in court and showed the jury the scars from his stab wounds all over his body and on the back of his head. Jose's testimony was really the final nail in the coffin for the McDonald's trial, and also the fact that Paul never took the stand in any of his trials didn't help his case either. Not that anything he would have said would have helped, considering how much glaring evidence they had, but, you know. The heart of his defense was the head injuries he suffered throughout his life had rendered him with a broken brain. His lawyers provided the courts with brain scans and testimony from doctors who diagnosed Paul with four conditions, including chronic paranoid schizophrenia and nosagosia. What? Symptoms of psychosis in which a person cannot recognize that he or she is sick. His defense was going to bring up that Paul had many mental deficits and trauma that led him to commit the crimes that he did. Therefore, he was not culpable. The only problem with that theory was the fact that if you were that mentally damaged, then you probably were not going to be able to sit there and plan out all of these things because all of these murders were very premeditated. Like these, these things were not surprises, you know? Mm. After his arrest, Paul's family, notably his sister Linda, also argued that he was mentally incompetent to stand trial. Following his convictions, they argued that he was not able to make sound legal decisions. He displayed erratic decision-making, choosing to appeal some verdicts and not others, and professing his will to die as sentenced after having fought to avoid such a fate earlier in his defense, because they were fighting for the death penalty. At the same time, Paul exhibited public signs of paranoia, calling his defense team quote-unquote actors, and claiming that he was part of the United States government mind control project called Scientific Technology that monitored his every move. In cross-examinations, the prosecution attempted to counter this defense by claiming Paul was a crafty con artist using these quote-unquote delusions as a defense mechanism. In all three trials, Paul Dennis Reed was found guilty of every charge, and because of that, he received a total of seven death sentences one for each victim. 
He was the only person in Tennessee at the time to have received seven death sentences. That's a that's a big that's one. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a really big that's one. That's a lot. Well, I mean, what happened next? <laughs> How did we get here? So that day at the McDonald's trial, Mitch Roberts and Jose Gonzalez actually met and they shared a moment. Mitch said he greatly respects Jose because he can't imagine the terror he must have gone through that night. 100%. Yeah. On November 1st, 2013, Paul Dennis Reed died at Nashville General Hospital. And the cause of his death was from complications due to pneumonia, heart failure, and upper respiratory issues. He had been in the hospital at the time for about two weeks. And Mitch said that he thinks that that is not the best way for him to go. He's like, he got off too easy. So he did. I mean, that's also, his opinion, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, he died of pneumonia. A little too easy. But, you know, karma, karma feels real in this moment. Yeah, true. Today, Jose Gonzalez lives in New Hampshire with his daughter and his wife. And he has a construction job in Boston as of the time of the documentary that I watched. But yeah. it's, it seemed pretty recent. So good for him. So true. I we hope nothing but the best for Jose Gonzalez Absolutely. and his family. And I believe Mitch Roberts is still just doing his thing, living in Tennessee, doing whatever he's doing. So yeah. I'm sure he's fine. I mean, he had a lovely family. Yeah, I hope they were left alone to just live and that he bought an actual shotgun to have right above the door. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes I am disappointed by the fact that we don't have more information about these survivors and like, where are they now? And like, how is their amazing life doing? But also, I'm kind of glad that they're not in the spotlight anymore if that's not where they want to be. So I oh, just, yeah. I hope they're well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we just want to know that all the details of their life worked out. Yeah, of course. Went well, we only wish them well. But of course. Yeah. But that, sometimes privacy is the best. For sure. Thing. For, for sure. I'm, I'm glad that people for have a survivor that. Survivor like this. Yeah. Um, but that is the story of the fast food killer. Insane. I know. I mean, he had a slew of. I mean, he was a nut. Yes. I mean, what did they diagnose him with? It was uh, paranoid schizophrenia, like and, psychosis. And a, and a, Ana, anosonogosia. Do you know what that is? It says it's symptoms of psychosis in which a person cannot recognize that he or she is sick. So they're like, he's a paranoid schizophrenic and all this stuff. I mean, not that that really... Yeah, I mean, aren't all mental disorders of that magnitude? You can't actually differentiate that you're sick or not? Mm, I don't know. I, I feel like most of them, like the reason that it's a disorder is that you... Well, I mean, that's wrong, but... I feel like for most of them, you don't actually know that it's a problem. That sounds somewhat correct. I mean, I know a lot of uh, mental mental disorders or issues are hard to diagnose because the person doesn't know that they're having problems. They just like think it's their normal. But yeah, I mean, the fact that he's a paranoid schizophrenic doesn't make him inherently dangerous. You know, I think they were. I think the defense was just grasping at straws. I mean, yeah, they were trying to keep him off death row, but... Yeah, you can't really... You can't murder six people and seven. then be like... You can't murder seven people and then be like, oh, oh I he have didn't mental know. problems. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he just was having a hard time. I mean, yeah, even if 
even if he did, like... That's insane. It needs to be removed from society. Yeah, and, and the people before he even got out and did all of these murders to begin with, when he was getting out of prison for whatever robbery charges he was facing, all of those professionals were like, he is still a danger to society. But yeah. he got out for whatever reason. And even when he left, he was like, I will not leave witnesses. Yeah. How how can you just let them leave? Like, I, I'm sure there's some rule that's like, once they're out the door, you can't really do anything about it. But also, he actively was like, yeah, I'm going to kill people. What? Yeah, I don't know. Believe him when he says Seriously. that shit. And the professionals that were looking after him. Believe them. Yeah. Insane. Anyway. That's enough of that horror, you know? Let's, that's a horror. That's a, that's a true horror. Let's have a bit of a palate cleanser. Tell me about your good thing. Yeah, my good thing this week is that I kind of had a little breakthrough in therapy. Oh, word. Yeah. Love that. So I guess, I don't know if, how much I should talk about it. But like, <laughs> You don't have to talk about it if you don't, don't want to, talk, to. But it was like, I guess I just really didn't understand fully how much stress affected my life. Yeah. And my therapist, you know how they do that, where they just kind of be like, here's, let me throw this out there, see if this makes sense to you. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, this explains the last 10 years of my life. <laughs> yeah. We love those and moments then, where you're like, oh shit, you just read like, me. Fuck. <laughs> are you kidding me? And uh, yeah, that happened this week, but I mean, it's good because then I can move on. And yeah. Be Start better. to process. I processed it. It's all right. I just know what to do now, I guess. Good. I'm or, so like, happy for you. Yeah, so that was cool. Love that. What is your good thing? My good thing is that I revisited TikTok today for our podcast, which I'm very happy about. I did kind of neglect it for a minute there. A minute. A minute. Let's not talk about it or really <laughs> We're examine back, baby. what a minute means. But um, <laughs> but I Wasn't we it a were back. Full year. No. No way it was a full year. That's insane. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it anyway. Um, but it's it's great. And I and the, the video that I posted today is doing pretty well. And I'm excited about it. And I hope that we get more people on TikTok and like liking it and sharing the sharing the content. That way we can grow our audience, you know? More naughty. So if you're on TikTok, check out Not Today Podcast and give us some love. So your good thing is a promo. A I little love bit. that. I'm a businesswoman. Hell yeah. <laughs> anyway thank you guys so much for listening if you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast if you would like to check out some extra bonus content and vote on it and be in our discord server check out our patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast mm -hmm. if you or anyone you know has a story that you would like to share with us and hear in an upcoming listeners episode uh, send it to no today podcast at gmail.com we have a TikTok, hello, Not Today Podcast uh, on TikTok. We have a Twitter that is Not Today Podcast, with a T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.